Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a new semi-regular segment of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Joining me here in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is former Dig Dug High Score holder, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is SpecGram's chairman of Feudal Relations, Keith Slater. Hey, great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from an abandoned diner in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right, first up, let's hear some more lies, damn lies, and linguistics from Trey Jones. All right, guys, uh, just to remind you, there are three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is fiction, though the fictitious one is based on something that is actually true. Each of you will then have to talk your way into a choice of uh, which one you think is false, and when you're all done, I'll tell you a little bit more about each one and reveal which one is the lie. We'll keep score from podcast to podcast and see who is the most gullible. <laughs> Everyone should know who Semeticus is. Besides being the namesake of our sister publication, Semeticus Quarterly, and the publishing powerhouse, Semeticus Press. Well, yes, I think we all know who Semeticus was. For those of you who don't know, here's a quick refresher. He was an Egyptian pharaoh who sought to discover the original language by having two babies raised by a shepherd without hearing any spoken language. Their first word was supposed to have been bekos, which Semeticus determined was Phrygian for bread. One modern explanation for the children's choice of first word, if the story were actually true, is that they were imitating the sheep. In honor of Semeticus and his experiment, here are three purported facts, only two of which are even supposed to be true. First, Semeticus wasn't the only one to experiment with language deprivation to determine the origins of language. James IV of Scotland, the King of Scots around the year 1500, sent two Scottish children to be raised by a mute woman all alone on an island to determine whether language was learned or innate. The children were reported to have spoken perfect Scots, confirming James' theory that language was genetic. Number two. In the 1930s, Wendell Johnson wanted to know whether stuttering was caused by an expectation that a child would stutter. So several children at an orphanage were told that they were likely to become stutterers. Within months, they became reluctant to speak. They used only short sentences, and their grades dropped. Six years later, one of the orphans wrote to the experimenters, you destroyed my life. I could have been a scientist, archaeologist, or even president. Instead, I became a pitiful stutterer. The kids made fun of me, my grades fell off, I felt stupid. Clear into my adulthood, I still want to avoid people to this day. And then number three, Athanasius Kircher was a 17th century German Jesuit scholar. He established a link between the ancient Egyptian language and the Coptic language, and is considered by some to be the founder of Egyptology. However, his translation of Egyptian hieroglyphics were not so hot. His translation of a particular cartouche was given as... Osiris's protection against the violence of Typhon must be invoked in accordance with appropriate rituals and ceremonies through sacrifices and through appeal to the protective spirits of the threefold world in order to assure the happiness and wealth which the Nile usually bestows upon the enemies of Typhon's violence. The correct translation, worked out 150 years later by Jean-Francois Champollion, was much shorter. It was just the name of our favorite pharaoh, Semeticus. All right, Bill. We'll start with you. Okay. I think number one is probably true in that I think the woman that he picked to do this was mute because she was hearing impaired. As far as she was concerned, the children were, in fact, speaking perfect Scots. <laughs> as well as everyone else she knew, yeah. Well, and as far as, you know, she can tell. Right. It's Number two... I think that one's true as well, because this kind of thing is one of the reasons that we came up with ethics committees and human research review boards. Number three, I think, is the false one. Even though Kircher's translation does sound like something you could get out of Semeticus if you decided it was like 
form 573 of an ancient Egyptian trilateral root or something. It seems just a little off, so I'll say number three is a wrong one. All right. David? <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting here, and I can't believe what I heard. You really think, you really think the second one is true. I'm, I'm going to go out and say that is absolutely false. They, they they gathered these kids together and told them they were going to be stutterers, and then uh, and then they went on and had this you know horrible life. I don't know. I can't see that as possibly being true. On the other hand, I have studied Egyptian hieroglyphs, specifically uh, Middle Egyptian, and I know what that stuff can look like, and it can get pretty long, and it's very very easy if you don't know what you're doing to completely misunderstand and misrepresent what's there on the text or on the wall, as it were. So um, yeah, one sounds pretty true. Two to me just sounds way out there, and I'm going with three as true as well. Keith. Well, this is a tough problem as as usual, but uh, I guess I'll take a stab at it. I, I think I want to take them in reverse order. <laughs> Number three, Athanasius Kircher. That sounds like a German Jesuit name, so uh, that could be true. Egyptian and Coptic, yes, yes. Well, Jean-Francois Mushroom, that sounds that sounds French, so I could go for that uh, as being a real thing here. And honestly, we all know that translation is uh, an art, not a science. This is a pretty artistic translation, so I, I think I'll go with that one as true. Now, uh, let's see. Number two, Wendell Johnson ruined someone's life by making them into a stutterer. The power of suggestion is great. I, I think I'm going to go with that one as true. I think that that's not at all unlikely. Just the sort of experiment one of us academics would dream up. Now, number one, Psammeticus was not the only one to experiment with language deprivation. I think that is true. But as I recall, when King James the 15th or whoever it was did this experiment, he reported that the children grew up speaking very good Hebrew. So I'm going to say that number one is the one that is false. Okay. Let's see. So that, that's really interesting. Each one of you chose a different one. So oh, thank well, goodness. Only one of you is right and two of you are wrong. <laughs> uh, who chose the last one as being incorrect? That, that was me. Bill. Okay, Bill, you are incorrect. Yes. In fact, I have a hard time believing that someone could do this. But yeah, so his translation, which is almost 50 words long, was actually just a cartouche for Semeticus. Was he actually a bureaucrat? Because that would explain it. <laughs> that's, a, that's pretty good. Continuing in reverse order, number two is also false. So, David, you're wrong. Unbelievable. Yep. Bill is right. This is probably exactly the reason why there are ethics review committees for anything that has to do with human subjects. And Keith is spot on for the first one. It, you guys fell for the big lie instead of the, the little one. It wasn't Scots. It was Hebrew. The children were reported to have spoken Hebrew. Uh, I didn't know you were going to be tricksy. I'll remember that in the future. I want you to know. Some of you guys haven't been doing enough reading of your Scottish history. I was pretty sure I remembered that one correctly. <laughs> oh, what a punk. All right, Keith. <laughs> I, I, you're on my list now. And you're on my list for good. Keep it in your mind. David, watch Don't, out sorry. with that coffee! These are my best pants! Hey, this coffee is hot. I Look, guys, I'm going to have to step out and change. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Not that I'm uh, unhappy that that happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see Keith when he gets back. 
All right. Well, uh, in the meantime, let's go ahead and move on and talk about some language news. First up, biologists at UCLA have been studying rodent populations, and they've made a shocking discovery. The larger a mammal's social group, the more likely a given mammal will be able to distinguish itself from the group. So specifically, prairie dog calls are easier to individuate the larger the prairie dog's social network is. So uh, obviously there are wide-ranging and far-reaching implications to this study if it's true. That is, it would seem that if one wanted to become more of an individual, one should simply acquire more friends on Facebook and more Twitter followers. And as evidence of this, I offer Charlie Sheen. True or false, Trey? False. I think it's comforting to imagine that Charlie Sheen has been driven to his recent antics, in part by the fact that he feels the need to stand out in a crowd of billions, but there's really no evidence to support it. On the other hand, it may only be possible for him to act the way that he does because there are billions of other people out there to take up all of his slack because he is completely useless at this point. You would imagine in a more traditionally sized tribe of 150 people or so, anyone acting that individualistic would probably be killed on the spot or at least subject to three or four exorcisms. <laughs> or worship. Following him. Or worship, that is true, yes. <laughs> are you guys following him on Twitter? Because I am. I am not, no. You're missing out. I am not, no. <laughs> Another thing is the need to individuate and the ability to individuate are not the same thing. That's why there's so many interchangeable emos on Facebook who claim that their hellish lives in the suburbs are worse or different or special compared to the rest of the emos out there. Uh, apparently, I don't know. Apparently it's true, though. And what I was wondering is, does this make anti-groupy hipsters less individualized than Justin Bieber fans? Ooh, that would explain a lot. <laughs> Again, though, it's it's just their distinguishing calls, right? So what's the what's the equivalent of a distinguishing call for a Justin Bieber fan or a anti-group a hipster? Perhaps it's the sound they make when they're socked in the stomach. <laughs> what I was do, thinking. Do anti-group hipsters recognize each other as being anti-group hipsters? Whether or not they recognize each other is different from the question of whether or not they admit to recognizing each other. I think. Oh, uh, that's mm. a point. That's a point. I, I was wondering yeah. at sort of like which point in the socialization process cognitive dissonance happens to them, where it's like, oh, good, there's another anti-group hip. Uh-oh. <laughs> Does it ever actually occur? Or <laughs> I'm going to rebel and be ironic just like everyone else. Right. <laughs> right. So... So I was wondering something vis-a-vis -vis language. I know it was mentioned somewhere in there that there are groups of people living together in cities. What strikes me as odd is if, if this has anything to do with language, it seems to me that it should be the case that the larger the city, you know, the larger the group of people living together, the less likely that they will have a distinguishing dialect. And yet we know that in English, for example, there's a characteristic New York City dialect, there's a characteristic Boston dialect, there's a characteristic London dialect, so that it seems like there's either some disconnect here, or prairie dogs are different from human beings in some crucial way. One piece that would kind of explain that is if you say, look, you've got two contrasting pressures here. One is the pressure to individuate yourself against this background of other members of your species. The other is to disindividuate yourself so that the person to your left who is looking around to wreak havoc 
havoc on somebody will view you as like them and therefore wreak havoc on somebody else. Mm. Prairie dogs may have the first pressure, but not as much of the second. Uh, you don't normally hear about vast deserted areas where the prairie dogs all killed each other over tribal battles or that kind of thing. Maybe it happens. I, and I don't know about it, but maybe it's all going on deep underground. But that would kind of explain part of this. You've got kind of two pressures imposing bracket conditions and we're waffling back and forth between them. But it doesn't have to be language mediated though, right? So for example, I can imagine that prairie dogs and probably hipsters as well can identify each other, members of the same type by smell. Mm. Well, also notice that it's it may not be the characteristics even of their vocal uh, symbols or their vocal behaviors that in human language would correspond to what we, we would think of as the semantics of it. The distinctiveness actually is the important part, and whatever message there is doesn't even have to be coherent, which again would account a lot for Charlie Sheen, Sarah Palin, you know, any number of individuals who with distinctive communications and no content. Tiger blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, another hypothesis we have not considered, though, is that Charlie Sheen is actually a shape-shifted prairie dog. Prairie dog. Mm, yeah, who is so awesome he can change shape. Winning. One of the things, though, that they mentioned in the article is that it wasn't just any vocalization. It was their signature vocal call. This sort of almost seems to correlate to a name. Mm. Do hipsters all have the same name because it's okay for them all to be ironically called John or Mary because they never talk to each other and need to, di you know, individuate the different Johns and Marys. I think their names are Wilco Elliott Smith. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, so I see what you're saying here. So then since we have names, we don't need individuated vocalizations like, you know, well, I don't know. Uh, people named David and Bill might need to individuate themselves a little more than someone named, say, Trey. Right. You do have an unfortunate name. <laughs> if by unfortunate you mean completely awesome. Oh, right. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry. A little too much tiger blood there. There was an article that came out in 2006 about uh, the signature whistles in bottlenose dolphins and how they actually convey identity information as well, and that, which allows the dolphins to individuate each other. So this idea of animals having names is reasonable. We actually wrote about this in Specgram uh, the same year and showed that human children, even more than dolphins, recognize their names. <laughs> that was an, an important dis discovery there. If, if I may, if we can learn to imitate, you know, fairly precisely these dolphin calls, could this be a window into dolphin identity theft? Yes. Fantastic. I don't know what the value of stealing the identity of a dolphin is, but you definitely could. I'm sure you stick a speaker in the water and there's some poor little lost dolphin calf and you play the identity call of its mother and it would come running towards your boat and then you could harpoon it and eat it. Yeah. Yeah, that's free that's free tuna. I love it. I love it. I kinda have to suspect though with that with dolphins, what we're interpreting as names or signature calls are actually that dolphin's signature insult. <laughs> Oh. Because, you know, one of the little known facts about dolphins is that the whole time their humans are near them, they're constantly insulting the humans. Right, because dolphins are jerks. Right, you can tell by that smile they have. Yeah, they're they're mean. They're dolphins, we're humans, it's it's one of those things. They're basically playing the dozens with us. We are earnestly analyzing their calls, not knowing what they're doing, and they just think it's funnier. 
It's gone on for ages. And this after we named one of our great football teams after them. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. There's an interesting sort of meta-language point about one of the articles that uh, we looked at. And they said that as they studied larger social groups, they found that each animal's signature focal call was more individual. I bet the first pass of that was more unique. Which to me makes more sense than more individual. Yeah. But a lot of people uh, will rail against that that construction of more unique. You know, it's either unique or not unique and there's no gradation. But I, I disagree. I mean, for example, if there was a dolphin living with the prairie dogs, that would be more unique than any yeah. of the other prairie Absolutely. dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. It's more unique means uh, unique in a more interesting way. Right. Mm, yeah. To all those who would disagree, I would say that our language is more better than yours. Agreed. All right. Now for another group of mammals that have attempted to distinguish themselves with individualized vocalizations, architects. This bit of trivial analysis comes from an article in Slate Online entitled, A Discourse on Emerging Tectonic Visualization and the Effects of Materiality on Praxis. And if that means anything to you, you're part of the problem. Uh, apparently, architects in the United States, without asking permission from the director of the English language, have created their own jargon with seemingly understandable English words used in bizarre and incomprehensible ways. Uh, and I have a couple of examples from the article. So first, the word materiality, which is being used to essentially mean materials. That is what buildings are made out of. Metamorphosis used simply as the word change. And as in the following sentence, metamorphosis of space is a flexible correspondence of space to its situation caused by certain external factors. And then this fabulous word, praxis, which is how theory is implemented, which vis-a-vis architecture, that means when architects actually build buildings. That is called praxis. So clearly, this whole thing should be illegal. The question is, what, if anything, can we do to stop these radical extremists? Bill? Well, I hate to tell you this, but I don't think you're going to be able to stop them. And there are several reasons for this. One is these architects spend a good bit of their time having to pitch these projects at bureaucrats. And if you say anything clearly, bureaucrats will not fund you. (laughs) It has to be puffed up at least by 600% before a bureaucrat will take you seriously. Number two, there's a bit of that other bracketing condition that I mentioned from the Prairie Dogs. This is kind of a group membership behavior for architects. Mm -hmm. They're frequently feeling that they're in exposed positions. They may be surrounded by engineers who can actually build things, (laughs) usually unlike the architect. They are exposed to the threat that, well, maybe the engineer could get as much pay as the architect if nothing were done about this. And so all of those pressures sort of support this this in-group jargon behavior. And it's similar to what you see in, for example, among software designers and PR people. You notice that they've started using functionality for everything. You never get a little ad saying, well, the program does more for you. Instead, you have, it has enhanced functionality. 
Which you can utilize. Right. Yeah. Which you can utilize, right? Part of that's because they painted themselves into a corner with the word function. They started using it for specialized things. And then they couldn't use it anymore for what you would normally use it for. So then they have to start slapping more suffixes onto it. If I can ask about that, it appears at least to me, I don't know, it's not it's not exactly clear from the article. Maybe we'd have to ask an architect, which seems just a, a frightful thing to do. But for a lot of these words, it seems like they've just replaced other words and those words themselves don't actually have a specialized function. So, for example, material versus materiality. So, you know, the software engineers, they, they have a specialized usage for function, which, you know, kind of put, put pressure uh, made in. necessary. Yeah, it, it pressured the, the need for functionality. Right. But it, it's, it sounds like these renegade architects aren't even using the word material or materials anymore. When you look at what software PR people do, they're using functionality even though the word function isn't blocked for their audience. Mm. That could just be a uh, aerial feature in the they're in the vicinity. Oh, but it's spreading. Look up functionality, and uh, if you look at like the corpus of contemporary American English, and you look at the use by time period graph on it, it's an absolutely wonderful upward curve. I mean, this this is snowballing. Right, because it started with the it started with the software engineers. Then it spread through co- by contact to the PR people, and then and right. then it became a standard. And it sounds impressive, right? And it became right? a. St- I mean, functionality, functionalitization is a maticity would sound even better. <laughs> mm. But it's spread in the PR dialect across different domains, right? And then that's why it's just continuing to spread, right? There are other types of things that haven't spread that way. I saw a reference in a programming guide the other day to a hash bang line. By the way, if you're ever in the third floor coffee lounge at the Spectrum headquarters and they've wheeled out Lady Fantod <laughs> for her afternoon excursion, do not say that term around her. You will get this story about some party in the Trucial States in the 1930s and you will have images in your head you will not be able to get out. Okay. It, it, <laughs> what that woman can do to a reference to intercalated stems is just illegal. Speaking of things that should be illegal, I I do believe this kind of language abuse should be illegal. Though I think, getting back to the, I hadn't thought of this before, but getting back to the prairie dogs, it may be driven by the same Mm -hmm. needs that, that Bill was discussing earlier that drive the prairie dogs to individuate themselves. Because if your signature call or if your pitch as an architect is so incomprehensible that no one can remember any three words in a row, then they can't compare it to the pitch of another architect and all the architects, even though they're actually all saying the same thing, appear to be individuated because none of them seem similar because none of them have any, any features with which to distinguish them. But but then they just collapse the distinction between themselves and literary critics. Thank you. I was gonna I was gonna get to that. So I, I disagree a bit with Bill. I do think that this sort of language abuse should be illegal. Maybe there isn't anything we can do about it, but maybe we don't need to do anything about it because it's just like burglars who get stuck in chimneys or would be bank robbers who leave their wallets behind at the scene of a crime. We don't really need to do that much to stop them. Social evolution and economic optimization will take care of it for us. And like Bill was alluding to there, they're they're late to the party. Chomsky or at least the Chomsky bot already does this, and anything that's post-structural or post-modern is a shining example of how BS can be turned into academic power. But outside academia, which is, uh, according to recent estimates, 98.4% of the world, nothing that happens inside academia matters. Mm. And the capitalist marketplace, which, according to recent estimates, makes up 200% of the real world, will just handle this. 
So, for example, academic philosophers who train non-academic philosophers don't really have to worry about how the non-academic philosophers use language and what their future employers think of that because their future employers will train them exactly the right way to say, do you want fries with that? On the other hand, these non-academic architects who have to deal with real people who want to spend these millions of dollars. I'm not convinced that some of some of their audiences are bureaucrats, but you also have big companies that don't have infinite budgets and don't and you know, actually have shareholders that they're accountable to. And I think in that situation, they really want to make sure that they're getting something for their money and uh, shining them on with this impressive incomprehensible jargon is probably not as good as giving them some idea of what it is they're really buying. Have you ever read those companies? Ah, but see, in that case, they're not trying to decide whether or not to spend millions of dollars. They're trying to shine on investors, which is different. Mm -hmm. Ah, So so you you speak differently to people who you're trying to convince you're awesome, full of tiger blood and winning, and you want them to give you all your money, uh, give all their money, versus the people who are trying to convince you that you want to spend your money for a building, and this building costs twice as much as another building. And the statements you make to convince people that you're full of tiger blood work better when they're actually not validatable in any way whatsoever. They have no testable truth value. Because hmm. uh, then no one can show you're wrong about it. Right, right. That's right. That, that's the postmodern approach, definitely. Right. <laughs> well, that explains mission statements. That's yes, true. Right. Uh, uh, and John, <laughs> so you guys think that, or you're pretty convinced that the spreadization of this is not going to continuate? It will probably discontinuify with fairly rapid nowishness. I think mm. it'll come to an end eventually. Just an end? That's yes. it? Yeah, possibly right. right now, in fact. If that's how you want to do it. All right, that'll do it for language news. On to a new segment we like to call Ask Mr. Linguist. Uh, let me tell you, this is a real treat, ladies and gentlemen. We have a correspondent who is actually an actual linguist. He's got a master's degree in linguistics, we're told, and everything. And it's actual linguistics, too. It's uh, not just some related and less important field like uh, cognitive science or rhetoric or psychology or molecular biology. This guy is a real no fool in linguist, and he's agreed to come on the air and answer your questions. Do we have him on the line? Uh, sir, are, are you there, Mr. Linguist? Hello, I am being here. Very nice meet. We're glad to have you. We've got a question for you here, and Trey's going to read it. Are you ready? Okay, great. Go ahead, Trey. All right, so this is from 10-year-old Kevin Bickelson of New Haven, Connecticut, and he writes, What do you think of the Urban Dictionary? Is it a valuable resource or a carbuncle on the arse of lexicography? Mr. Linguist? Very good question. Very happy you asked. Are you familiar with so-called dictionary? It's like Wikipedia, only it's dictionary. Anyone can be a thing. Not everyone should. Uh, are you also being familiar with so-called plan of dozens? This game of wit and insults in which contestants hurl sharp verbal barbs at each other, or each other's oversized mothers, and first one to run crying from scene, lose like little girl. Uh, there is also a very fine website, Rate My Mood. You are familiar with this. Uh, wizards are voting on uh, pictures of mood on head, and the best mood win. I didn't know that there's such thing as best bullet. I was not knowing either. Uh, Urban Dictionary is a horrible mad science combination of all things described. Uh, if we're food would be a giant pirog filled with live muskrat holding plastic ballerina. Uh, not the nice kind of plastic ballerina. Cheap kind. Cheap. Uh, a site where anyone can edit information about slang words and phrases. Anyone can be a thing, but not everyone should. 
like how you are playing a dozen, you are having credit for much cleverness or having accurately uh, moderately. Uh, best insults are both. Uh, your mama's so fat works best if mama is being fat, no? Which is not a definition that is best. Uh, are you not buying that there is best definition of going ham? I was not knowing either. Um, essentially, Urban Dictionary is game of lexicographic dozen, frozen in digital amber. As such, is very valuable to future med lexicographers who will be able to extract linguistic DNA from digital amber and inject into denucleated pigeon language, which will then grow into full-blown urban English. At first, we'll be wonderful to revive such exciting data language until it is taken over entire extinct language part and it in all our visitors. Uh, for you, it's not valuable. Uh, I mean, it's not valuable. Uh, do not read it. Do not get wet. Do not feed after midnight. Uh, thank you very much for question. And always, uh, you feel free. Ask Mr. Linguist. And there you have it. Thanks so much, Mr. Linguist. We'll look forward to talking to you again. Uh, and if you, a uh, listener, have a question for Mr. Linguist, send your questions to mrlinguist at speckgram.com. Well, that took a little longer than I expected. I'm back. What did I miss? Not too much. All right. That's all the time Maybe we have. you finished. Oh, come on. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Tune in next bit. time for some more largely nonsensical banter tenuously Guys. related to language. Thanks for listening. Uh, I quit.